I want to welcome everyone to a bonus edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brand. I have a special guest I'll talk about in a second. As always, we're presented by betonline.ag. They're your online sportsbook experts. They're the exclusive partner of Podcast One and Sportsnet. Don't forget the promo code PODCAST1, all caps. You get a 50% sign-up bonus, betonline.ag. This special podcast is with Buddy Baker. Buddy is an agent. He's been around the NFL quite a while representing players. Some of his clients include the Griffin Brothers on the Seattle Seahawks, former Seahawk Doug Baldwin, Indianapolis Colts, tight end Jack Doyle, uh, and Washington Redskins receiver Terry McLaurin. Buddy is a respected agent, works hard for his clients. He has suffered unspeakable tragedy amid this COVID-19 crisis. Last week, he lost both parents in a matter of six minutes apart. It is a heart-wrenching story, and it is one that I hope you will enjoy hearing, though, however sad it is. And he has a message for those about the virus itself. Without further ado, someone who just suffered unspeakable loss, Buddy Baker. Buddy, thanks so much for coming on, and, and so sorry for your losses. I appreciate that, yeah. Hopefully just trying to pass a message so another family doesn't have to suffer the way we are right now, but appreciate you having me on. Yeah, and I appreciate you going through this. I know it's a painful memory, but maybe before we get into what happened over the past month, but uh, give you a chance to talk about your parents. And I, I read in Sports Illustrated, my colleague, writing about um, – their love since I believe high school or college and how it's gone on for 50 something years. Uh, let you just sort of talk about your parents right now. Sure. You know, I talked about, um, in, at their funeral, their virtual funeral, how, you know, yeah. referencing Shaquille and Shaquille Griffin, how they came out with a book called inseparable and they're as close as in every way they were born a minute apart and, and how close they are and how they, their journey has been together as two humans can be. Well, my parents, where every bit is inseparable, inseparable. They um, were rarely in different rooms of the house. When they sat on the couch, they sat right next to each other. Um, they either had or, or learned to have the same likes and dislikes. Um, and, uh, you know, from sports to TV shows, and my, my dad was an avid golfer and my mom became an avid golf watcher. And, and so, like, um, they were, there was relatively no arguments or issues and, um, so they were as inseparable as two humans can be. And, uh, you know, ironically, um, we, always, we always thought and wondered how one would exist without the other. And um, unfortunately, we're never going to have to experience that And um, as they both pass within minutes of each other. So um, both great people then live. You know, we work in the world of sports where there's big contracts and, and, you know, famous people and all these different things. My parents lived a much simpler life because my dad was a physical education teacher and my mom was a clerk with the IRS and they didn't live a life filled with, uh, you know, fancy cars and exotic vacations and a lot of money, but they lived a life uh, certainly filled with love for each other that they shared with, with me and my sister. And, and we've tried to pass on to our, to our children and in our daily lives. And, um, mm-hmm. and, you know, an amazing life and an amazing journey together. They met at a sorority party in New York city uh, when they were, you know, in the teen years, um, and shortly thereafter, my um, my grandfather, my father's father, passed away. My grandmother, my uh, my mother, was there for him during that time, um, and they were together through Vietnam and my dad being drafted and just starting careers and as a teacher doing multiple jobs and summer jobs, having to go work sleepaway camps, and my mom would go and be the assistant nurse and. 
Um, so it was an amazing time and amazing uh, life that they had. And, you know, and again, I, I, it's somewhat poetic in a very sad way on how they passed. And um, you just, you felt like they were ultimately cheated out of, you know, 10 to 20 more years or great years because they were in great health and um, able to do everything right to the end. And it just happened so quickly. It's still kind of hard to wrap your head around. You mentioned you and your sister. Where did you guys grow up and where were your parents when the, the virus outbreak started a month ago or so? So we, we grew up in Long Island, um, about 50 miles outside of the city. Um, and the reason we moved there was because my parents wanted us to, they grew up in New York City and they lived in New York City their entire lives and they wanted us to grow up in a more suburban type world where you have a backyard and the things that you have in suburbia, suburbia as opposed to growing up in, a, in an apartment in New York City. So we moved out there when I was five years old and my sister lived out there her entire life and my dad continued to commute um, for three plus hours every day into New York City to be a gym teacher um, so that, you know, we could have that life and um, that they ultimately created for us. And then they retired um, about 17 years ago and down to South Florida, um, to the east coast of South Florida, Boynton Beach, not far from West, in between West Palm and kind of Boca Raton. And um, mm-hmm. so they retired down here around 17 years ago and created a new life. And ironically, a lot of their friends that they grew up with, who they were so close with their entire lives, also retired down here within um, 15 or 20 minutes of them. And then they obviously in their uh, community developed many, many, many new friendships and, and developed those and cultivated those and um, and touched a lot of lives. And so when they contracted that, they were in Florida um, and my son and I were actually down here and we were staying, we were staying, going back and forth in here in Indianapolis. And um, until we were down here and obviously we're, we're here now for the, uh, for the near future. So to take us through what happened, and I know it's been, you've talked about it, in this tragic time, but was it your father first that started having symptoms uh, right when things kind of broke out here in, in early March or mid-March and then to take us through what happened and, and then your mother caring for him and then becoming a victim herself? Yeah, and we, and we talk about how quickly it was and how the world was changed. I think it was a month yeah. today, Andrew, that was the last pro day, um, of which I was at Jeremy Chin's pro day in Southern Illinois. Uh, my parents drove me to the airport on that Wednesday, so a month ago yesterday. Um, and when they 11th, drove me yeah. to the airport, um, they were fine. Um, they were hmm. in perfect health. Um, when I returned um, from the pro day, um, they started feeling a little sick. Um, so they went to the doctor. The doctor gave them I don't some type of medicine. I don't remember at the recall at this time. and Didn't get better, so a few days later, I went to the hospital. Or, and, or I don't know if it was a hospital or med check, and they told them to quarantine. Um, so they started their self-quarantine. This is when it first became in vogue or really what people realized you needed to do. Um, and after about four days, um, they were up and down, and they got sick simultaneously, I'd say. But again, it was nothing major, and um, they both went to the hospital about a week after they had first got the symptoms. Um, they admitted my dad. Um, they did not admit my mom. Uh, my dad, they put him on a breathing mask. Uh, he wasn't even on a ventilator or an ICU. We thought he'd be home in 48 hours, as I've said before. 48 hours in, they moved him up to ICU to get him on a ventilator. And I remember the conversation vividly that we had when 
um, because we were talking three or four times a day through the through the through the mass. Um, mm-hmm. And then when he went up to the ICU and they put him on a ventilator, they sedate you. So I remember him saying, "Talk to your mom." I said, "No, Dad. I just talked to the nurse." And, and we thought he'd just kind of rest. He was real anxious up there because again, you can't have people come visit you, and um, it's it was a, you know the hospital was obviously chaotic. Um, and so we thought, okay, now he's going to be able to rest. He'll be on a ventilator. And again, we thought that we weren't super concerned that he was never going to come home. Um, we thought the issue, if you read it back then in Italy, was the lack of ventilators um, and that right. people couldn't get them in time. So the fact that he had one um, gave us that feeling of comfort that he was going to be okay. Um, and, you know, at the first day on the ventilator, he improved a little bit, but then after that, it just started going really down. Um, and by Tuesday, um, they called me around 3.30 and said he wasn't going to make it, which was really the first time when that doctor told me that I can tell you where I was standing and, you know, kind of how I felt, but like where I couldn't believe it. Because even Monday, they're like, hey, your dad's sick, but we we never, we didn't think it was life-threatening. And, and whether that, that wasn't the information that was being properly conveyed to us, our interpretation of that information, et cetera. Because again, you're not in the hospital, so you're not talking to the doctors regularly. You're not sitting in a waiting room. You're not allowed to be. Um, so when we went to um, visit my mom, my sister, you know, me and my kids and my sister earlier in the day, and then we went back, um, she would sit in the garage. We'd sit outside the garage because, again, referencing what I said earlier, they couldn't be separated. So now you right. have two people that can't be separated. My mom was largely dependent upon my dad, and she was alone for 23 hours a day um, because you know, she, no one can go visit her. Um, her friends couldn't come over. We couldn't have her come over our houses. Um, and so we just were very concerned how she was going to take care of herself and what was kind of going through her head, knowing that, you know, my dad, her husband was, you know, obviously in serious medical condition. And we were just kind of giving her, um, information to not overly alarm her because again, we weren't overly alarmed. And so when I found that out on Tuesday, we were trying to think, what can we do? And, my daughters who are, you know, obviously younger than me, were going to go stay there because we knew she wouldn't even be able to function. She'd fall down or something like that, just out of anxiety and, you know, kind of every, all the emotional aspect. She had no symptoms. She had no fever. She had no, um, you know, shortness of breath, really. She had um, no, nothing like it wasn't coughing. So, but we took her to the hospital since my dad had tested positive. We thought they would admit her and we thought if she had some sort of attack, at least you're in the hospital and you're also safest there because we couldn't really have anybody properly take care of her at her house. And so we took her there really thinking, are they even going to admit her? If they do admit her, how long are they going to keep her? And then what do we do next? Um, and cause we didn't want to just shock her and say, okay, you know, he's going to be passing. And um, within 45 minutes, the emergency room doctor called me and said, um, your mom's, got very low oxygen level. It's okay. You know, we open her ventilator. She goes, yeah, but she's probably not going to make it. So the whole hmm. time frame from when I was told about my dad to the time I was told about my mom was about five or six hours. Um, hmm. And we were, you know, so the initial shock of my dad was okay. He was, he had, didn't have the same, you know, genetics as my mom. My mom's mom lived to 95. Her grandma lived to 96. So, and she was 72. It was like, it made no And hey, she was never sick in her entire life. And so we just, it was, it was surreal. And, um, and so obviously that was on the Tuesday and they both passed the following Sunday. Um, and every day that week they got worse and it was just excruciating phone calls. You were calling the hospital cause again, you couldn't be there. So we were calling the hospital four or five times a day, talking to the treating nurses and, and or physicians. And every single time, Andrew, we just got 
you know, kind of terrifying and horrific news. Um, it was never, oh, yeah, we saw some improvement. They weren't improving in any capacity. Um, and so every time you just waited for the next three hours to call back or the next shift yeah. and, and, you know, I'd wake up and, you know, at six so I can call because I knew the nurses got off at seven. So I wanted to see how, um, they did during the night. And, um, right. and it was just, it was, it was challenging. And, um, you know, and again, it, and then right up to the point they, they passed and my sister and I got to go in, um, the room on that Sunday, the respective rooms on that Sunday, we had all the gear on the masks, et cetera. Um, to say goodbye and, and, you know, you don't want that ever to be the line. Obviously they were both sedated. Um, and the only request that we had was that when they take them off the ventilators, put them in the hospice, what makes you take his course is that they're in the same room. And so they put them in the same room, took them off the ventilators. They actually took a picture of them holding hands, which is obviously is very hard to look at. Um, and yeah. then my dad passed away almost right away. And my mom, a few minutes later when they took him off. It's heartbreaking when you're going through this and you say, you know, you can't visit them. Could you go to the hospital and see them and wave to them at a distance? Yeah. So we did, they, no one, we went a couple of times. They only let you go if they were at the end of, they called it an end of life situation. Um, so the day after my mom was admitted, she was immediately put up to ICU that night. Um, that Wednesday, they didn't know how long my dad was going to make it. My mom was a little bit better situation. So they let us go that Wednesday. And then by Saturday, um, they basically told us neither one's going to make it. It's almost 100%. So they, but we went out. So I, on, I was, they told me that Saturday, Friday night. And so on Saturday, I said, look, I'm getting all this mixed information from doctors over the phone. When you're talking to different doctors, I need to come up there. And we went up there, my sister and I, more for the purpose of being face-to-face with a doctor um, and getting mm-hmm. the information about why your parents are not are going to pass. And so we went there more for Saturday. And every time we went, we would see them through the window. And But, again, they were, they were sedated. So they were yeah. – on that Wednesday, my mom was partially sedated, so she actually waved at us. But by Saturday, um, they were 100% sedated and couldn't see us and – um, and looked like they were sleeping. Um, and then obviously the same on Sunday before they ultimately passed and, uh, yeah, but you can't, and every single time that we went, you can't even, you weren't allowed to even go in the, the waiting room or even into the hospital. You, you know, they had people outside that would check you before you went inside. And then when you went inside, they would usually stop you right there. Um, but it was obviously rules in place for a reason. And, and obviously because of the, um, spreading of this horrible virus in this hospital you say somewhere in florida were they getting overwhelmed or at least uh experiencing their share of COVID 19 patients you know it, it, we noticed over the course of the week how it met how it started increasing earlier in the week they were it was i wouldn't say it was slow by any stretch um but when we would call again four or five times a day and by the time we went there on saturday a more rooms were filled um, if not all of them, and then B, every time you would call, they would say it's really hectic here. Well, earlier in the mm. week they weren't, and they were cordial about it. But nevertheless, it was it was obviously becoming um, more overwhelming. And, and and in fairness to them, I think one of the things that you know is not given enough attention is these people are obviously that are working there are jeopardizing their own well being by being in those places, and I'm sure that psychologically impacts them as well. Um, yeah. being in not just ar- around sick people, but around sick people who have this 
you know, virus that is so easily transferred to somebody else. So um, while they have gear and stuff like that, that's, we know from the numbers that um, it, it's, it's still going to likely be spread. One of my best friends in New York is a New York City police officer, and he, uh, he, he just tested and waiting on the results, but four to 15 mm-hmm. people in his unit have already tested positive. And so, um, and they haven't even all tested. And so, you know, that's, these people are literally putting their lives on the line and, and, you know, we're grateful that they're willing to do that because not everybody would. During these horrific five, six days, when you're sort of from beginning of contraction to unfortunately passing away, I'm sure you're doing a lot of research. You're doing the Google searches. You're trying to figure out how it could take hold so ominously in their lungs anything that you sort of came up with during that time in terms of, uh, that you want to share with people that, that how, how vicious this is and especially for people that are compromised. Well, I mean, we were getting like, I think you hear the stories, right. And everyone was kind of sending them to me about the 95 year old person who walked out of the hundred, you know, and like what the doctors told us, which was fair, which is those stories are getting attention because they're so right. few and far between. Um, you know, there was a lot of other information about how almost no one from Italy was coming off of ventilator. So while we were trying to be optimistic, we were also trying to be realistic. Um, you know, when my dad first, when my dad first went to ICU, that's when really the media wave hit about this anti-malaria drug and how this was going to coupled with ZPAC potentially be a, 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 you know, a, a change, a changing change the game, right. To change the ability to, um, overcome, um, you know, this, this virus. And my dad was on it at zero effect. Um, and obviously my mom went, eventually went up a thousand later in the week. And so I, I can't say that it's not had any effect on anyone, but I can just tell you, we were over two. Um, and there wasn't, you know, and so there wasn't a lot of hope and I, I don't want to be hopeless and kind of communicate this message, but the message is yeah. let's stop the spreading of it and not get to this point. Right. I mean, right. I, you know, again, I don't have any words of wisdom of how you're going to beat it. I think if anybody, if I did or anybody in the medical community would, obviously that would be a, quite the story. I think that the message that needs to get communicated is it's a very, the, the virus can be spread very, very easily. Um, if they, and we have to look at it as it is, as a lethal virus. It's, you know, again, the flu kills people and I'm not minimizing that, but not at this rate. And, mm-hmm. and so like, it's, people have to realize that you have to make choices and the choices are literally about people uh, are people dying. And so uh, what I try to tell people, Andrew, about this is like when you're going through the grieving and mourning process, um, one of the worst parts of the whole process is not being able to be surrounded by family and friends. And I've had such outpouring of support and love that I'm, you know, I'm very grateful for, but they can't be here. You can't hug people. We had a virtual funeral with nine people. Um, you can't grieve in, in the normal way, right? In the typical way. And so there's so much, you know, you can't, you're not sitting around with people and telling stories and eating and doing all these different things. You're, you're kind of in social isolation and that's, that's, it is what it is. So if we can get through it during one of the worst times of our family's lives, people can do it through boredom. People can do it because, you know, it's not the easiest choice. And, and I'm very unsympathetic for somebody who says, yeah, but there's no, yeah, but I mean, you have to realize the consequences potentially are that of that are somebody 
being in our situation, whether that's an older person or whomever it may be. And on that note, you know, you look back to a month ago, a month ago, we were still playing NBA games. That, that Wednesday, the night before, they played an NBA right. game. They started the Big East tournament, I believe, on that Thursday, right, and canceled at halftime. Um, right. And so and they were still going to play those games a month ago today. What we've learned over the last month, two to three to four weeks, has totally changed the world as we know it. So why do we think that we know everything that we knew almost nothing two to three, four weeks ago, but now we know everything? We don't. An animal just, you know, obviously got it in the, in the Bronx Zoo. So what mm -hmm. that tells me is over the course of time, we're going to know that much more. So the whole thing that this person can't get it, this age, this demographic, this nationality, to me, this race, et cetera, is silly. And what we know is that we don't know a lot. The one thing we do know is we have to stop the spreading of it. And that's only going to happen by people making, you know, incredibly safe choices. Yeah, it's highly transmissible and highly, unfortunately, lethal. And th that's what's so scary about this. I wanted to ask, you know, bringing it to the mundane world of being a sports agent, it's a busy time because pro days, which obviously didn't happen after the one you went to, and getting your guys ready for the draft combined with all your veteran clients wondering what the heck's going on. Are you going to have workouts? Are they going to get their bonuses? Are they going to get their salary? What about the season? I guess sort of during that this hard, hard time for you and when you're right in the middle of it, buddy, how much communication was going on with your clients about a business of the NFL, but more importantly about your personal situation, or do you keep that to yourself? No, I mean, look, when you've been doing this as long as, you know, we have in this industry, your clients become, you know, extended members, as you know, you've been yeah. on both sides of it, you know, they, the clients just become part of your family, like, just like, whether it's your clients now or back when you were an agent before, or, or your coworkers when you were working with the Packers, right? Those become right. extended members of your family. And, you know, Doug Baldwin, you know, literally text messaged me every day him and his wife text message me every day, just telling me they love me and support me, et cetera. So, I mean, even a young Terry McLaurin, um, you know, my clients have been very understanding. Obviously I have a, a staff that can handle the daily affairs. Um, I'm back a little bit more involved now. Um, I'm trying to do a little bit more each day, one, because it needs to get done, but two, because it's somewhat of a, a nice distraction for at least a little bit each day, as much as you can do. Um, right. And, you know, the hard part early on was, a big part of our business is being on the phone, particularly at this time of year. And I really didn't feel like talking to anybody, but, um, you know, now, um, so I think our, my clients have been beyond supportive. I, I've been very communicative with them about it. Um, quite a number of them attended the virtual funeral and sent me some of the nicest remarks, which I'll kind of remember forever. Um, and so they've been great and, uh, and very supportive. Um, you know, from my retired clients to my active clients to my draft eligible clients. And, and again, and then as far as like the business, you know, obviously frequency had to happen and that happened. And um, so you kind of navigate through that. And then as far as the draft is concerned, um, initially, you know, things were really shut down after that first pro day for a couple of weeks, which unfortunately and fortunately at the same time, just kind of hit it head. Um, now that we get closer to the draft, um, I'm more engaged, as I said, along with my staff and kind of getting everybody prepared for what comes next. Um, but when people ask about, you know, well, what do you think about OTAs? And what do you think about the mm -hmm. season starting? Or what do you think about training camp? And I think it's silly to have those conversations. It's just, it's mind-blowing to me. You know, Adam Silver said, 
um, you know, we're not going to have any of those discussions as to when the season's going to happen until at least May 1st. And that's the right way to handle it because we don't know what the world's going to look like tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen and what's going to unfold. And, and, and again, it goes back to the sentiment of knowing what you don't know. And so, like, so we can't say, oh, yeah, the season's going to start on time or training camps are going to start on time. And, and when people say that, I think there's, it's just naive and it's just kind of misleading. Um, and again, and so I've had to experience that firsthand and that's what I've communicated to my client. Um, but what I've told them is that it's challenging for football players in particular because of the, you know, they don't have a guarantee if they're hurt working out on their own outside the club facility, right? It could constitute a non-football injury. Um, but we also know not working out, not being prepared is all, could also be very injurious to your career. So you got to kind of balance those things. So, um, I've told our clients, they've got to figure out a way, um, to do it in a safe way. Um, you know, I'm a little bit, um, perturbed and, and kind of frustrated when I see group workouts, um, and guys working out with other guys, because again, that's to me, just kind of a selfish approach. There's a way to do it, um, to where you can be in great shape, um, without, or, or in the necessary shape without jeopardizing the health and well-being of others. And that's what I've kind of suggested to my guys and to everyone has been, you know, willing to do that. Last couple of questions with Buddy Baker, a longtime friend who suffered unspeakable tragedy, losing both parents last week to the virus. You made that video and put it on social media. You sitting on the couch and just sort of saying those words that you lost both parents within six minutes. And then, of course, talking about testing and, and taking this as seriously as we need to. What went into making that video in your mind? What was the primary purpose in putting that out there that got so much coverage? Yeah, you know, when I when you lose both parents, you have administrative aspects, right? All of a sudden, like I, I was telling someone here before I jumped on with you, is like, um, you know, I, when I went to, we had the house disinfected, but I had to go in there to get all this stuff. And so I went in wearing some gear and stuff like that to get their paperwork to start sorting through it. Right. And I, I kind of made a deal with myself, just go straight to the office, the home office, and just grab the stuff and don't go anywhere else. Don't look at the pictures on the wall because you won't be able to take it. Well, somehow I wandered into the living room area and I found a, you know, a spoon there and, and, a, and a half drinking water bottle because they expected both to be coming home and, you know what I mean? And no one's ever going back to that home again, unfortunately. And so I say all that to say, it's been really challenging to go there. Well, the first time I went there to meet someone for the disinfection process and the sanitization process, um, I couldn't go in obviously. So I was standing in front of their house, right on the street as they were in there. And I was just walking up and down the street um, and keeping my head down because their neighbors would, you know, in, in the retirement village would, kind of want to talk to you. I really don't want to talk to anyone. So I keep my head down. I was just thinking, crying. Um, and yeah. as I walked up and down that street, I thought, you know, what can I do to honor my parents? What can I do um, to um, make them proud of what I'm doing in this, under these horrible circumstances? And so the first thing I thought of was, you know, to start a fund that could be used to, in their name, um, for benevolent purposes. And we decided to do some COVID uh, contributions and we're going to start a grant for inner city kids, um, you know, because my dad was there for so many years for inner city kids uh, moving mm -hmm. forward. The second thing was, this is such a horrible feeling that, you know, you can't describe. What can I do to um, 
make somebody else not potentially not feel this feeling. And again, in the name of my parents. Um, and I thought that that video, because again, we tell our clients, use the platform that you have for the greater good. You have a platform, help others utilize that platform. I tell my clients, everyone you should strive to do the MVP of the league, that's great, but also to be the Walter Payton man of the year, to change lives. Well, I normally don't have that same platform as say a Doug Baldwin or a uh, Jack Doyle, whomever, right? But I do have um, that platform now, unfortunately, because of this horrific thing that happened to me. So I opted that the only thing that could, A, take up some time, and then B, um, maybe ma accomplish those things was to send a video out um, that would allow me to utilize that platform that can inspire others, A, to stay home and, and hopefully you know, change other lives, and then B, um, eventually start this fund um, that can be used for, a po you know, for positive change. Um, and that's kind of, that was kind of the motivation behind it. And, you, you know, again, not realizing or expecting that it was going to receive any type of reaction of which it did. It's been a great story and unfortunate tragedy, but you've made it something that people can latch onto and sort of with that emotion, maybe give. So tell our audience again, how they can support the foundation you created. Yeah, there's a GoFundMe page under, you know, I'm not super um, in tune with that, but there's a GoFundMe page under Stuart and Adrian Baker um, Memorial, Fund, Memorial Fund. of Again, a uh, percentage of the, all funds will be distributed to, to charitable causes. A certain percentage will be given to COVID research and, and, and people affected by the COVID. And the other part will be to start this grant on an annual basis um, for, for kids coming from less fortunate areas because, I feel like that's something that my parents built their whole lives upon about helping others, changing others, um, and being impactful in others' lives. And this will allow them to do that for the, for the foreseeable future. GoFundMe page, Stuart and Adrian Baker. Is that how you find it? Yeah. Yeah, I believe. Stuart and Adrian uh, Baker Memorial uh, Fund. Memorial Fund. Okay. I encourage everyone to go there. This is an incredible story. Buddy, you've been a shining light amid the darkness uh, for what you've gone through. It was heart-wrenching, but heart-inspiring as well, what you're doing now. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing. And you put out a message that we should all take this as seriously as we absolutely should, in case anyone wasn't. But uh, what a story and what a message for these times. All right, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. Really hope you enjoyed that special edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brand with Buddy Baker. What a story. I appreciate him sharing that. Hope you enjoy it. Hope you hold close to your loved ones after hearing it. Thanks for following me on Twitter at Andrew Brandt, Apple Podcasts, rankings, and comments. Always appreciated. And we'll be back next week with another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt.